from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, flagellated apes. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Jill Stam. She will talk about early brain development. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Lynn. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty relaxed. You're the most relaxed guy I ever met. Well, I had a good night's sleep. <laughs> Where did you sleep last night, Charles? I slept wherever the stars take me and gaze into infinity. <laughs> so you didn't go to the YMCA then? It's fun to stay at the YMCA. Because <laughs> you can get yourself clean. <laughs> Completely unrelated. Uh, <laughs> I thought this ape- was about sleep. We'll get a sleep article on these All days. right. Do you ever go ape shit? <laughs> I'm lacking in both fecal matter and ape-like abilities. None of the inner anger in you, right? I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> so, you know, scientists have wondered in terms of the cognitive similarities between apes and humans for a long time. There have been reports that the behavior and cognition are similar between these two uh, species and that the conclusion is that animals have human-like abilities. But it turns out the microscopic level of the human brain contains features that you cannot see in any other animal. And David Premack at the University of Pennsylvania has now suggested that we really should not be comparing animal capabilities to humans in the sense that animal behavior is an adaptation focused on a single goal, for example, getting food. Whereas for humans, it's facing an adaptation of more or less an infinite number of goals. I see. The challenge here is to understand what are these cellular level differences that give rise to the nature of how the different brains adapt to goals. The one may be just sort of a subset of the other, right? So the specialized goals that animals have Mm -hmm. may have evolved into the general abilities that humans have. So actually studying the specific goal ability might actually shed light on humans. But the question needs to be asked differently, I think. Right. Maybe the better way to say is that humans are just not the big brain apes. (laughs) I'm not even sure if we're even slime mold. (laughs) (laughs) We're still looking for intelligent life here. Certainly if you watch Jerry Springer or something. (laughs) He's actually intelligent. It's the other people. I like Jerry. Uh, Anyways, this is a cool article in my very favorite journal. The Proceedings. Of the National. Academy. Of Sciences. PNAS. All right, so what's your favorite argument against evolution? Um, I present myself. (laughs) (laughs) You're a highly evolved being? Or a lack of. (laughs) (laughs) Or devolving being? I can't fly, you know. (laughs) Well, not yet. (laughs) But maybe you'll be able to absorb other people's powers one day. Oh, yeah. We'll see. I travel through time. (laughs) (laughs) Yatta! So it turns out that one of the major arguments that a lot of people, for example, in the intelligent design movement have tried to use is the notion of the bacterial flagellum being far too complex to have evolved. Okay, but I thought the perception of light has evolved three different times at three different lineages throughout all of biology. So anything that complex coming out three different times 
indicates, you know. Right, that there's convergent evolution of a number of these traits arise in a number of different ways. Right. And in fact, it looks like in this particular case, a bacterial flagellum, 50 genes build and operate this flagellum. And recently, research done by evolutionary biologist Howard Oakman and postdoc Renny Liu at the University of Arizona have shown that in each species, these genes actually start to get duplicated. Mm -hmm. And it's the duplication of these genes that leads to the complexity of the bacterial flagellum. Right. And so it's uh, very simple to show how evolution can operate by basically the simple gene duplication mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really all that complicated. It's just the complex interaction among the duplicated genes that gives rise to something as complicated as the bacterial flagellum. Right. Work done from University of Arizona, my home state. <laughs> uh, this, unfortunately, not published in our favorite journal, but published in Science Now. Good enough. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Brooklyn Rock Science Show you're listening to. Coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Jill Stamm will join us to discuss early brain development. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, childhood is a time of rapid change and development. It is during this period that the most dramatic changes in mental acuity take place. Well, what can parents do to make sure that their children develop to their fullest potential? Join us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Jill Stamm. Dr. Stamm is the co-founder of New Directions Institute for Infant Brain Development and is an associate clinical professor of education at Arizona State University. Her new book, Bright from the Start, The Simple Science-Backed Way to Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind from Birth to Age 3, explores techniques for enhancing the development of a baby's mind. Dr. Stamp, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure, and I think you really penned a very fascinating book, especially for all people who have newborn children. But I think one of the fascinating things that you point out in the book is that much of the development of a child's mind takes place very early, whereas a lot of the educational development is uh, yes. done much later in life. Yeah, we have sort of had a, a bit of a mismatch of uh, the opportunities for brain growth and development and really, really solid wiring in the brain in the earliest years. And then we dump a bunch of money <laughs> into remediation in elementary school, high school, and beyond. And finally, we incur lots of expense in what I call way downstream problems of incarceration and unemployment and those kinds of sort of social programs. It might make a whole lot more sense to really provide quality care, whether it's in a person's home or in a center or the lady down the street, but to assure some really high quality care in the first couple of years of life when the brain is really developing its powers for cognition and emotional responsiveness and so on. Is this a very new finding in neuroscience that a lot of the development has taken place early in life? 
Relatively speaking, yes, because the technologies to enable us to look inside the developing brain really have only been around for the last 10 or 15 years. And in the scope of things, that's a pretty short amount of time. And prior to that, we were dependent upon psychological measures and paper and pencil testing and observation. But now we can actually see a developing brain as the systems come online. And even the neuroscientists who are doing this work are astounded by what they're really finding. One of the key messages is that any of the systems that wire early, those in the back of the brain, the visual center, those in the center of the brain, the emotional configurations and the emotional responsiveness in the environment, those kinds of very early developing systems are pretty resistant to change. And it's both the good news and the bad news. The good news is when children get really high quality care in those early years, those systems just develop naturally and in a healthy way. But if the child is under extreme prolonged stressors, for example, internal structures like the hippocampus, which is a, a structure in the very center part of the brain that is used for the rest of our lives for filing memory, for determining how easily we're going to have access to storing information and retrieving it. And that's really important information. Another aspect that because of the technology available today, we're really at the cellular level. They can really watch what's happening in a neuron when that neuron learns something, when information is processed. And we are finding out that the sort of interplay between heredity and environment is really powerful, that the environment can actually cause certain aspects of your DNA and mine when, when we're little to either express itself or not. That's one of the newest findings, and it's an area of research that's going to really, really grow. So is, is the take-home message then is that really you have to stimulate and use it either or you'll lose it? Yeah, the, the brain is a use-dependent organ, and there are certain aspects of the brain that are going to unfold naturally through heredity. But how the brain systems connect to one another, setting up emotional reactivity, for example, is very dependent on environment. And so a lot of the things that we question and we look at and we, we see two kids, we say, gee, this one learns so easily and is so able to focus and pay attention nicely, and this child is uh, highly distractible, impulsive, and a little out of control a lot. Uh, gee, I wonder what that's due to. Well, obviously there are some factors that are hereditary, but the huge portion is really under the control of the environment. How do we take these uh, basic science findings about the developing brain and actually implement that in terms of a strategy for creating an environment that uh, facilitates the development of the brain? Yeah, in some ways it's actually easier than one would think. And mm. I, I don't want to sound like back to basics person, but what the science is really finding is that what brains really need to develop in a healthy way are much more people focused than we would have suspected. It's not about gizmos. It's not about computers flashing in the, to a two-year-old. It's not DVDs. It's mm. not those kinds of things. It's human interaction. And in the book, I divide the chapter. I, I call them these the ABCs of early learning. Attention, 
bonding, and communication. And all of the neuroscience research really clusters very nicely around those three concepts. And so, for example, in the book, in the attention section, I really talk about some simple kinds of games that you play with tiny infants using a rattle to cross the midline of the the baby's body, the middle part of the body. When you do that and a baby is tracking a rattle, they're actually forming connections between the left and the right hemisphere, for example. So they're easy things, a lot more FaceTime than some kids might be getting. One-on-one, lots of eye contact, lots of ability for a child to watch the parent's face as the parent is talking to the child. All of that is really going in to form the templates for language and for attention. One of the interesting things that as I was learning this information myself, the attention system is actually sort of three parts in a brain. But two of those three parts wire up completely in the first 14 months of life. So, I mean, it's it's kind of staggering information that I try really hard to present in a very accessible way to families so that they are not frightened by it, but that they actually, I give lots of lists of things to do. It's one thing to talk about the science and, you know, how marvelous all of this new technology is that is helping us to discover this. But most parents are are kind of left with, okay, I get it. This is important. But tell me what to do differently. So I've tried to have a lot of sort of that kind of information in the book as well as talking about the science. Uh, It seems to me that a lot of the sort of nurturing behavior should be somewhat instinctive for uh, maternal or parenting instincts. Do you think the modern society that has sort of uh, shifted us away from what we actually just sort of programmed to do? You know, we are programmed to do it, and it is instinct. One of the nice things that I love about what neuroscience is finding is that it confirms a lot of our basic instincts, spending that one-to-one time. But, you know, not all families can do that. We, We live in a society where that's pretty hectic and the pace is pretty fast and sometimes we are forced in our circumstances to not be able to tune into our own instincts in which case i think knowing the factors about how brains form effectively can really help a parent in deciding okay i can't be spending this kind of time with my child but how can i set up my child's daily life to include this from other caregivers grandmas and aunts or the lady next door. So one of the things that I always recommend is that if a parent is reading this information and understanding it, that whoever they have their tiny infant and toddler staying with all day, that they really need to understand this information. And that the parent can, you know, not in a testing situation, not to quiz the, the caregiver, but to really talk about, well, what did you do today with my child to encourage how much they are bonded to you as the caregiver? So there are lots of things that people can do if they know this information. I think much of the American public is influenced by the entrepreneurial spirit of making all of these toys and fancy things that cost parents a lot of money that really don't deliver on a promise of making a child more intelligent, and that bothers me. I'm curious, uh, what do you think of, as you mentioned, these uh, gizmos and approaches like, for example, the Mozart effect was highly touted a while back. Well, specifically, uh, to answer your question about the Mozart effect, there, there is absolutely no evidence that just listening to classical music changes brain structure at all. However, as I discuss in the music chapter, uh, there's wonderful new research being done at Harvard that shows that actually playing an instrument hmm. when a child is very young, three 
four, five years old, learning to play the violin, for example, or the piano, that that actually does change brain structure. Mm-hmm. And we've got some really good neuroimaging evidence to show that. So the reliance on gizmos, I guess one of the lessons that science is teaching us is that a little bit of any of these gizmos is not going to hurt a child. I think what we need to be careful of, though, is thinking that these gizmos are going to replace a high-quality, predictable, loving caregiver, Hmm. which they're not. Is there a sort of a natural progression for a child's learning? I mean, is it sort of jumping the gun then to um, jump all the way, for example, to highly sophisticated types of stimuli with a child? Should you start very simply and then move on? Well, most of the evidence shows that doing some very simple things actually achieves what you're looking for rather than to try to skip ahead. For example, the early readiness skills that we hear so much about, kindergarten readiness, well, it isn't really about the skills. What it's about is having a brain that is very active and capable of learning whatever skill is then taught in school. So, for example, There's no need to try to teach a two-year-old to read. What there is a need for is that two-year-old needs to have books in their environment. They need to understand that's a big mental leap for a tiny child to understand that the words on a page or pictures on a page actually represent the real object. If that mental leap is made in very early childhood birth to three, that's what sets up the brain really effectively for then building on that in learning to read. Sally Shaywitz at Yale has a wonderful book that explains dyslexia, for example, the the neuroscience perspective of what happens in a brain when a kid can't read. And when you look at the data and you go back to those children at kindergarten, they came to kindergarten different than the typical good reader. They came to kindergarten with the back portions of the brain, which are the parts that develop first, the back parts of the brain are less active. So your statement about it, is it getting the kid involved in a lot of stuff? Yes. And with lots of labeling of objects and lots of language, kids who hear more words in birth to three, some fabulous research that shows this, kids who actually hear more words in birth to three have a higher testable IQ by the third grade. Really good documented science to show that. Hmm. So these are the things that, you know, once a parent knows that, they're like, wow, so really what I'm supposed to be doing is talking to my child (laughs) and introducing them to books and pointing out, I mean, a word like giraffe, it doesn't come up in daily life, you know, when you're doing the dishes and you're doing the laundry, nobody talks about a giraffe, but boy, there it is in a book. Mm -hmm. And so it provides the perfect opportunity. Books are wonderful toys for young children because of the advantage it gives them with language. So this is all very early development. I'm curious, what about after the sort of uh, critical period has passed? Is there any advice uh, after that time? Yes, actually, and this is a really important message that parents need to know. The brain has this wonderful capacity for change. Um, It's called neuroplasticity. And lots of parts of the brain continue to grow and develop and change with good input at any age. So a really clear message that I like to make sure that people understand is it is never too late for a child. Not at five, not at 10, not at 22. It is just a difference in the sort of cost-benefit analysis. You're going to have to work a lot harder to change brain structure 
and the way the energy flows in the brain with a 14-year-old. It's going to take you a long time. It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. Can you do it? Sure. But that investment of time made in the earliest years allows that to happen almost effortlessly. That's the reason I'm so interested in early development. My actual parts of my daily job is I, I teach at ASU and I teach in the teacher preparation area. And so all of the children that I'm training teachers to work with are older than five. So we talk a lot about if just knowing some brain biology 101 helps both teachers and parents later on to understand behaviors of kids and to know sort of where to target their efforts with a child. Hmm. We're running slightly out of time, but if you sort of could just distill for parents uh, with very young children just a couple of basic things that they should be doing as their child's growing up. Yes, they should be reading every day, several times a day. They should be spending a lot of one-on-one, what I call FaceTime. They need to respond predictably early on to a young infant. The brain is a pattern-seeking organ, really, and setting up patterns where the child knows what's coming next is incredibly important for freeing that energy in a brain. And those are things that parents can do very easily, setting up schedules and providing alone one-on-one time with infants and young toddlers. There's wonderful research on the benefits of touch, massage, having physical contact with very young children. So really the things that get the most response from the brain are things that involve a love relationship with one predictable caregiver who's never going to give up on you. Uh, and just to sort of close, how did you yourself become interested in this uh, topic? I became interested partly, uh, I'd been a classroom school teacher. I was a fifth grade teacher way back when, uh, when my first child was born. And I'm the mom of two really different children. One, my youngest daughter is a budding neuroscientist as we speak. She's finishing her PhD at UCLA in neuroscience. My other daughter, Jenny, who's now 33, was born very prematurely. I was only 26 weeks pregnant, and as a result, she has cerebral palsy. So from these two very different perspectives, and Jenny's learning is always difficult and has been, we were advised not to bring her home from the hospital, that she would never talk, she would never walk. But, you know, we had already bonded with her, and I did what I knew, and talking to her. She has a fabulous vocabulary. She's very verbal. She's very physically handicapped as a result of the damage to her brain. But obviously that got me interested in what what is learning? How does the system work? And so all these years later, due to, you know, I went back and got my PhD in learning because I wanted to know how does it work? Hmm. So that's my personal story. And it obviously has impacted my professional life a great deal. It's a a great story, and it's uh, it's really amazing to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Well, uh, Dr. Stam, I do want to thank you very much uh, for joining us and, of course, talking about your book, Bright from the Start. Thank you. And you're just listening to Dr. Jill Stam talking about early brain development. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic bright from the start or still developing. So, <laughs> for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know are they bright or still developing? Okay. Uh, give it, I'll give it a try. Okay. Very good. All right. Uh, person number one is Britney Spears. Okay. Uh, that's pretty easy. Still developing. <laughs> okay. We're not going to give up on her, but. Still developing, for sure. Uh, number two is the famed golfer Tiger Woods. I think bright from the start. He seems very well wired to me, um, not only athletically, but seems to be able to handle a lot of stress really well and still comes out like a loving person. So I think bright from the start. Well, he's, I think he was playing since he was a kid. So yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So there's that early input, right? Right, right. All right, number three is uh, the famed uh, psychologist B.F. Skinner. B.F. Skinner. You know, I think probably bright from the start. He, he certainly hung in there with an idea a little longer than he should have you know, and wasn't really willing to look at a lot of other evidence, but I think he was probably pretty bright from the start. <laughs> uh, okay, number four is uh, talk show host Jerry Springer. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I think he's probably pretty bright and, and probably has been from the start. Uh, his behaviors on his television show and mostly the behaviors of others, you know, leads me to believe that his audiences, um, are, you know, are still developing. But I, I've seen him enough in other circumstances where I think he's pretty clever, actually. Uh, all right. And finally, of course, number five is the president of the United States, George Bush. Oh, my goodness. I guess I have to say still developing. And again, now there's a person, you know, when I said you never give up on a person, I'm sure that Barbara is not going to ever give up on him. But I think he's still developing. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Dr. Stam, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing our game. And, and of course, talking about your book, Bright from the Start. Okay. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was certainly our pleasure. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Master Harry must not go to Hogwarts, because Dobby is glowing green. Can't stop glowing green. GFP makes me glow green. Green fluorescent protein. Okay, Simon the Smoky Monkey here with this week's question of the week. Never smoked everything. It all smells good, but telling me it's nasty. What is it? If you think you know, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything. At least you won't go monkey. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.